who are here in person and all of you joining us virtually. We're so glad that you have joined us today and you are participating with us. I want to take just a moment to acknowledge our worship minister, Kip. Today he is leading worship and then uh, when church is over today, you are not going to see Kip again for uh, a month. We have... uh, We have sabbatical policies here in our church because we want our leaders to be here for the long haul, and Kip is overdue for a sabbatical. So Kip is going to be stepping out for the next month, and I just want to take this time to invite the church to be praying over Kip over the next month of his life. Kip, we don't need a song leader in this church. We don't need somebody who can get up and just sing, lead us in some songs and get some notes right. We need a worship leader. We need someone's heart who is connecting with God. And now for 13 years of me being here, I've had a partnership with you where I get to see what you do every single week. And I get to see how sometimes you, get, you choose a song because there is one line in the song that helps get us to the heart of God. And nobody else may know why you chose that song, but I see how you wrestle and you take, you take your job, you take your role so seriously. Because you see the power of songs coming into a church to usher us into the heart of God. And I really appreciate that about you. Um, We love you. We're praying for you the next month. We pray this is a time for you to connect with God. And I invite the church to be praying for the Spirit of God. Just to have an overflow, a pouring out in your life. Because we need a lot more of Kip in the years to come. So can we just put our hands together and thank Kip. We love you. You have faithfully served this church for 18 years, and I told you this past week, here in three weeks, we're going to celebrate seniors, Senior Sunday, and some of them were not born when you came to this church, uh, which is all right. And church, I just want you to know you're in good hands. I'm going to be leading worship and preaching for the next four Sundays, so you are in for a treat. This is going to be great. That would be just a little annoying, to say the least. Uh, Are there things that annoy you in life? Because here's one thing that annoys me in life. Has this ever happened to you? Where you try to pull out your earbuds because you want to listen to a song or you want to listen to a podcast or you use these to talk on the phone and you pull them out of a bag or your pocket and this happens. It happens to me all the time. And maybe this is why some of you have chosen to go ahead and purchase your earpods so you don't have to deal with this. Because sometimes I put these earbuds in my backpack, and I put them in in a very careful way, and it doesn't matter how careful I put them in there, when I get them out, a lot of times they're like this, they're just tangled up. And does it ever feel like this in life? That you find yourself in a season in life when you are so tangled and you don't know how it happened, you didn't ask for it? It's like there was just a season of your life and you wake up and you're tangled. I mean, the definition of being tangled is to be mixed up or to be very complicated. For some of you, the last year of your life, you have found yourself over and over again just entangled, tangled up. And it may be tangled because of grief. It may be tangled because of a small sin that entered into your life that has now become something bigger that you can't, you're struggling to deal with. And we just live these tangled lives. And today I want to talk about two people in the Bible whose lives got so tangled up for some reason. Now, as we get there, there's a story I tell a few years ago. We had some friends over. And we were sending these friends out of our house. We had eaten dinner. It was time for our kids to go to bed. They were four and two at the time. They were young. And uh, when our friends were about to leave, my oldest Truett said, Dad, before they leave, can I pray over our friends? And what kind of parent's going to say, no, you can't do that? So we sat back down. Our friends sat down. And Truett began to pray. And Truett's prayer went like this. Dear God, thank you for. And he just started naming all the things in life he's thankful for. Eyes open, going around the room, thanking God for the TV, the hammer, anything else in the room. 
And then Shrewd did this. His voice went low. So he was talking. He's four years old. He's talking. And then he was like, and God, I thank you that no one in this room has died. But someone in this room has died. And in that moment, I opened my eyes. Because I was hoping this wasn't an Ananias and Sapphira story. I opened my eyes because I thought, man, I, I don't know why that's the story that came to me in Acts chapter 5, but that's the story that came to me. I wanted to make sure no one had fallen dead in that room. Like, what was my son a prophet? What was happening? And his prayer was, God, thank you that no one in this room has died, but someone in this room has died. And it's Jesus. But he's not dead anymore. He's alive. And help us to live like that. In Jesus' name, amen. And all of us, I mean, our hearts are so proud. I mean, that is the kind of faith we want instilled in our children. And I, I don't know why my mind went to an Ananias and Sapphira story. It was a very creative way for Truett to get to the point he wanted to make in his prayer. And maybe he wasn't even thinking about it, but I'm sure I'm glad no one died in that room. But we have this story in Acts chapter 5, and I want you to turn there. In Acts chapter 5, we have this, this story, and it's a hard one to interpret, to think through. And here's how it goes, the first 11 verses of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge, and he kept back. Repeat after me, he kept back. He kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the, the apostles' feet. And Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart? Will you repeat that after me? Why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land. And while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body and then carried him out and they buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And so they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. And for the reading of the word, the church said, Amen. And because of this story... And the warning and generosity in this story, this is a good time. We're about to pass the weekly offering plates around the room right now. We just need to do this 901 offering all over again with this story in mind. Which, by the way, the 901 offering that was last week, our goal was $91,000. And in the first week, you raised in the high 80s. I think here in Family News, you'll hear the exact number. In my time here, it's the most we've ever given in the first week. And it's not just one person writing an $80,000 check. It's many people who stepped up because they believe in the mission and vision of who we are and how we're trying to connect with the world. So can we just put our hands together and thank God for generosity that flowed. <clears throat> now we have this difficult story, two people who just fall over dead. Right, this is wild. All right, uh, so a couple of things, a few things maybe to know about the book of Acts. Did you know Acts is the only book in the New Testament that never mentions the word love? Only book. 
That's a useless fact. You don't really need to know that in your life. But here are some things I do want you to know. Acts chapter 11 is the first time the word Christian is used in the book of Acts. And the word Christian isn't used until the church is a diverse, ethnically diverse church. That's when the word Christian is first used. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, this is the first time you have someone dying in the book of Acts. So up until this point in Acts, there may have been people in the church, there may have been people of God who believed that since the Messiah had come and now the Messiah Jesus was reigning and the kingdom of God had been ushered into the world and the church and this movement had been launched, that maybe death wasn't a part of the story anymore. Maybe the kingdom came and now like heaven came to earth and this is what it's going to be like forever, that people won't die. And now people in the church had died. So now they know death is still a part of our story. And this is the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. The word church, ecclesia, ecclesia, it's not used in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost or in Acts 3 or in Acts 4 as the church is growing and the message is spreading. In Acts chapter 5, the death of Ananias and Sapphira is the first time you have the word church mentioned in the book of Acts. And I think, that, I think that's kind of significant. Now, if I were to ask you what your favorite verse in the Bible is or your favorite story in the Bible and you answered with Ananias and Sapphira, I would be a little suspicious of things going on in your life. I was uh, early on in, in ministry. I was an interim uh, youth minister. I was an intern. I worked with youth uh, for the first couple of years. And I was teaching in class one day and I said, I just need people to holler out, what is your favorite verse in the Bible? And no one said Acts chapter 5. People said John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Philippians 4.13, that I can do all things, things through Christ who strengthens me. There were other people who were quoting verses from Romans about um, uh, the, uh, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us and, and other things. And then this one girl, a senior in our youth group, a leader in our youth group, she said Romans 12.20. And I said, well, tell everyone what Romans 12.20 is. And she said, if your enemy is hungry, you feed them. And if your enemy is thirsty, you give them something to drink. And by doing this, you will heap burning coals upon their head. And people in the room started laughing, but she wasn't laughing. And she repeated the phrase. I'm not exaggerating. She repeated the phrase, and, and, and you will heap burning coals upon their head. Come to find out, she had her, some relationships that had gone bad the last few weeks of her life. A boyfriend had broken up with her, and that was the verse that had become her favorite. If you're ever in a conversation with someone and they tell you Ananias and Sapphira is their favorite story, like your response should be, like I, I don't think there's really a wrong answer to what your favorite verse in the Bible is, but I don't think that's the right one. You're never going to have a children's ministry committee decide to use Ananias and Sapphira as the theme passage or verse for vacation Bible school or a church camp committee choose to use Acts chapter 5. This is what we want church camp to be about, Ananias and Sapphira. But Luke tells you, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the first four verses of Luke chapter 1, and Luke tells you in Acts chapter 1, which Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts, that he did thorough research. He talked to a lot of different sources. He carefully put together the Gospel we know as Luke, and he carefully put together the book we have called Acts, and Luke thought it was so important to keep this story in there. And for it to be the time when he first mentions the word church. The church was filled with fear. 
But in response to this, Ananias and Sapphira's story, you don't have a bunch of skeptics. You don't have the church gather to try to process why this happened. In fact, the very next story talks about how more and more people, both men and women, people of power and influence, priests, you have people from all different places in life who are coming to know Jesus. The church continues to grow. It doesn't shrink back. People don't leave the church because of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And in the story, we're not told that God killed them. We're not told Peter killed them. We don't know if their nervous system killed them. We don't know. It sounds like some Old Testament stories. And these are the kind of stories that can shake so many people's faith. Like, why did this have to happen this way? Isn't there another way that Ananias and Sapphira could have learned their lesson or the church could have learned a lesson? Or couldn't they have been given another chance? Or was everything they did in this moment bad? And let me back up just a little bit to try to help us understand why this story happened. If you back up in chapter 4, in verse 29 through 31, you have the apostles who had just been threatened. All right, so there are people who are telling them, hey, don't talk about the name Jesus anymore. And the apostles get together, and there are others with them, and they begin crying out to God in verse 23. And they're, they're praying to God, and in verse 29, here's what they say, and now, Lord, look at their threats, and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And one thing I love about their prayer in Acts chapter 4, they're not praying for physical safety. They're not praying or whining to God that things are getting really hard as they're trying to live out this message. That's not what they do. Their prayer is, God, there's a lot of threats out there. And what we need you to do is to give us boldness and courage to continue to speak and proclaim the name of Jesus with passion. And in response to that prayer, when they had prayed, the place, in where, and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. God answered their request. Their request was for boldness. God gives them boldness. And the place they were playing was shaken. I don't know if this has ever physically happened to me in prayer life, but I have felt like at least the walls of my heart have been shaken when I've prayed with certain people, even in the life of this church. When I've had a chance to pray with Rachel Galbraith and Bonnie Carr and Patrick Parson and David and Suzette Hall, it's like this passion that comes into a prayer life, a prayer time. There are times where John Poisson is called, he didn't even know it, to pray over me in a time when he didn't know how desperate I was in need of a touch of God. And in those moments, it was like something in me was shaken. And this is a reminder for the church that no matter what threats we face all around us, our response isn't to whine or to cave our response is to pray for God to continue to give the church passion and courage because there's nothing in the world that can stand up against that. The very next thing that happens is generosity begins to flow in verse 32. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions but everything they owned was held in common. With great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Now, there are a few things happening here and maybe some assumptions we have to make. I think there were some people who came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, experienced the power of the Spirit, entered into the church and they never went back home. 
And then there were plenty of other people in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem who had a lot of needs. And the church, knowing the heart of God, knew that the heart of God bends toward the needy around us. This was always an important part of who the people of God were and who the people of God are called to be. That when there are needy people, we raise up and we do something about it. Now, they didn't, everybody didn't just sell everything they have, so everybody made the exact same amount of money. There's going to be wealthy people who show up throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Yet there was a, there, the church knows that we are here to care for each other's needs. We're not going to let anyone else do it. We're going to take care of each other. And generosity begins to flow. As the church is one in spirit and one in mind. And then you have this. In verse 36, there's a Levite. If native of Cyprus, his name's Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he sold a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Those two verses, I think those two verses, this is, this is why the story of Ananias and Sapphira happens. Those two verses right there. This guy named Barnabas, who's a Levite. Levites weren't supposed to own land. I think by the time Jesus was born, maybe Levites, apparently Levites were able to own land. And Barnabas, moved by God, who had something to sell, sold it and brought it to the apostles' feet. To bring something to the apostles' feet or to bring something to someone's feet is surrendering it to them. So Barnabas isn't taking a selfie with this gift so that the whole world knew exactly what he was giving. He sold something and he brings it and he surrenders what he had at the feet of the leaders of the church, at the feet of the apostles. And apparently, this became a story that was celebrated as a testimony of God. Now, we don't know if it was direct response to that story that led the apostles to change Barnabas' name from Joseph to Barnabas, but if you've read the Bible from even way back in the Old Testament, and what Jesus does in the New Testament is when there is a name change, it's something significant. This is about identity. This is about mission. This is privilege. Something is being recognized. So here there's a name change, and Barnabas would go on to become this great mediator and advocate for the apostles, and even for the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 and his conversion. It's Barnabas who's trying to tell everyone else, no, you can trust this guy, like this mighty warrior in the kingdom of God. And I think Ananias and Sapphira saw what happened to Barnabas, and they wanted that. They wanted the attention. They wanted the recognition. They wanted the acknowledgement. They wanted it. Have you ever been in a situation in life with a job or maybe even your family where it seemed like everyone else around you was being affirmed but you? Other people were being encouraged but you weren't? And I'm not saying this is what was happening to Ananias and Sapphira, but they wanted in on what was happening to Barnabas. Maybe it was a name change. Maybe it was just to be acknowledged in a group of other people. So they chose to sell a piece of their property. And in chapter 5, verse 2, when it says, they kept back, this is a phrase that means embezzled. It's a phrase in the ancient world that meant financial fraud. I mean, they could have sold their property. And it told the apostles, hey, we sold it, 
and we're going to give 75% to the church, and we're going to keep 25% because maybe there's some debt we need to get out of, or maybe something else they wanted to do with their life. But they made it sound like they sold something, and they're giving all of it to the church because they're these generous people, and maybe through that they can be acknowledged much like Barnabas was. So they try to make this big deal about it. In Acts chapter 5, 5, verse 3, what Peter says is, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? And, and Peter's somebody who knew all about Satan filling a heart. I mean, it's possible for you to continue to confess Jesus as Lord, but to allow Satan to fill parts of a heart. This is exactly what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. All their motives weren't bad. It seems like they had some kind of care for the needy. But in lying to the Holy Spirit, they're lying to the church. In Acts chapter 9, when Jesus talks to Saul, who would become Paul, Jesus says, why do you persecute me? To persecute the church was to persecute Jesus. I think the motives behind this story is attention, recognition, and greed. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted the attention. They wanted the recognition and the acknowledgement. And there was also greed, which Luke talks about all throughout the gospel of Luke. And in the book of Acts, Karl Marx once said that every human attitude and action could be traced to economic sources. And William Willimon, who writes on the book of Acts, says this, that Luke wasn't a Marxist, but he was enough of a realist to know that there was a good chance that where our possessions are, our hearts will be also. And throughout Luke and Acts, and even up in, I mean, in our lives today, wealth can often be seen as a sign of approval, even divine approval. And throughout Luke and also through Acts, wealth can be seen as approval, but wealth can also, it's, it's constantly warned about as a danger for the rich and for the poor. For the rich, because the more you have, the more you can try to find your life, your identity, your worth in in your money and in your security and for the poor, thinking that if you could only get to that number, then that could bring the identity and worth that you need in life. I think the motives were attention, acknowledgement, and greed. But there's another reason I think Luke tells this story right here in Acts. Because at this point in Acts, The mission of God is about to go beyond Jerusalem. The mission hasn't gone beyond Jerusalem yet. Everything that has happened so far has been in Jerusalem, yet Jesus is the one who said, this message is going to go beyond Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This message is about to cross all kind of borders and economic classes. It's going everywhere. So the the mission is about to go, and for the mission to go, integrity has to be in place. I think this is a story about mission and about integrity. That for the mission of God to go to the ends of the earth, God cares so much about integrity and character. And I think Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the Ananias and Sapphira story, is a message to the church that the mission of God wants to go, but God cares about forming the hearts of people so that when that message goes, it is going from the hearts of people who are deeply rooted in who God is. That integrity has to be in place. Rich Velotis, one of the books I've read over the last few weeks called A Deeply Formed Life. He's a pastor up in New York City. And he tells a story. He didn't come to know the Lord until he was 18 years old. And when he came to know the Lord, he just had a burning fire for God. 
He received a call into the ministry shortly after his conversion. And three years later, he found himself in seminary. He was in a, in a class where one day he was supposed to give a presentation to his class about post-modernity, of postmodern life in the church and the impact that has. And, and there was a book they were supposed to read for the speech. And it was a 20-minute speech. Like, this was no little speech. And he didn't read the book, but he knew a lot about postmodern life and the challenges in the church. So he stood up in front of the class. And the first 10 minutes, he says he was giving this speech. And, like, all of his classmates were on the edge of the seat. But his professor had his arms crossed, just leaning back, like, bored out of his mind. And 10 minutes in, the professor stopped him and said, Rich, can I just ask you one question? And Rich said, what? And the professor said, did you read the book? And Rich said, no, I didn't. And everyone started to laugh, and the professor said, just keep going. Like, keep going with your speech. Even though you didn't read the book, we just want to see how this goes. And after class, the professor pulled Rich aside, and the professor said, Rich, here's the thing. One of the blessings in your life is that God has given you a gift to stand up in front of people and captivate a crowd and to talk with passion and enthusiasm, he said, but here's the curse for you. Is the curse for you is that you're going to think the rest of your life that you can live off your gift alone without taking seriously what it means to have a deeply formed life, without doing the hard work of God forming your character. I'm in groups every year where I get to meet with a, about a dozen preachers, pastors from around the nation. And it seems that no matter who we bring in to encourage us and challenge us, they all say the same thing, and that's one of them, is your churches do not need you to live off your gift alone. Your gift can only take you so far. Your heart needs to be burning for God, for God to shape and form you, your character, your integrity. Because here's what I want us to see today, is there is a mission for the church. There are people all around us, in your neighborhood, your workplaces, all throughout Shelby County, who do not need Jesus. And it's the, it's the church who has been tasked to share the message with the world. And there are needy people all around us who are in need of the generosity of the people of God to flow, to care for all kind of needs. But I don't want you to think that God is only cares about caring for the needy and sharing a message with the lost, that God doesn't care about forming and shaping people into the people God wants us to be, to take character and integrity so seriously. God's not going to bypass character formation to get to God's mission. There will be times where God's mission is going to go, no matter what the church does, but God's primary method to share with the world of the good news of Jesus and to care for the needy is to use people who are deeply formed, who care about being formed, formed into the image of Jesus. Randy Harris tells me every year that if the price is right, everyone's integrity is for sale. And I try to remind people that there is no small sin in your life that doesn't have a huge impact on everyone else around you. You may think that some of your private sins, your secret sins, don't impact other people, but it does. It impacts your heart, your mind, and this is why, when it comes to any way that we may be tangled up in life, we have to surrender this to the only one who can untangle us. That tangled up life is so hard for character to be formed. 
This is why as a church we have focused on eight core values to shape the core values and the values that are so close to the heart of God because God is shaping us into the kind of people God wants us to be so God can use us for God's mission throughout the world. So I hope this is filled with grace and maybe it comes across as harsh, but I think as we come to communion today, we need to take seriously what Peter says in Acts 5.3. That why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? And maybe for you, it's just why have you allowed Satan to fill parts of your heart? And to acknowledge this in the presence of God today. And that God will use our time around the table this morning and the rest of this worship service to form and shape us into a deeply formed life that takes character and integrity seriously. Will you bow, bow your heads with me? Let's close our eyes, let's pray. God, um, this story in Acts 5 always been one of the hardest stories for me to preach. I like to lean into stories of grace and love and, and mission. Yet there's truth here that inspired the church back then, and may it be truth that can inspire us today. That there is a fear that needs to come upon the people of God, but it's not a fear that causes us to shrink back but a fear that causes us to live courageous, bold lives. So may the same spirit that came into the church after this event in Acts 5 that led them into their communities to make a difference and to grow a church, may that same spirit be upon us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray.